Does it does it beef? Does it go on? Okay, all right. Okay. <coughs> Good afternoon, ladies and gentlemen. Welcome to the last teaching Friday of the quarter. Uh, we have a lunchtime uh, seminar today, and the speaker is Brett Kubisek, uh, who has his uh, BA from that great university, the University of British Columbia, in 1994, a PhD from a fairly reputable place, MIT, in 2004, with the shortest PhD title I've ever seen, Political Creativity. And in between those 10 years, not only did he work on his PhD, but he also went to Japan for a year. Uh, to teach English to Japanese professionals and to college students and working up formidable Japanese on his own. At MIT he also worked on minority recruitment programs. Uh, you've come to hear him, not me, so I'll just remind you that his title is Bridging the Gap Between Social Science and Leadership Studies and that Brett is one of our postdoctoral fellows this year in political science here at the National Center. Thank you very much. Well, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a, a big title, so, and uh, I, I found that when, often when seeing articles uh, with sort of similarly ambitious titles, uh, they're often followed by a, a colon and then something along the lines of uh, uh, the, the, polit pol the politics of licensing cheese manufacture in, in Spuzzum, British Columbia. Um, there is a town named Spuzzum, and there are politics of cheese manufacturing in Canada. Um, but I have uh, bitten off a rather large topic. Uh, it's sort of my response to uh, dissatisfaction with um, tools in social science uh, for thinking about leadership and with tools available in work on leadership for incorporating um, uh, the impact of social conditions. Uh, and, and my response to this sort of twin dis dissatisfaction is to uh, sort of think more generally about our approach to social analysis. Um, so the goal of my work, in short, uh, is to derive an analytical approach uh, that can bridge the gap between social science and leadership studies. Uh, so, and more specifically, my interest is, is, is in our ability to study um, and therefore understand how individuals might be able to reshape their political uh, environment uh, in an intended manner. Um, what I'm going to argue is that if political action is framed more as conducting long-term projects than less as making specific choices, and if research on differences uh, in individual capabilities is better integrated uh, with social science, then we will have uh, a bridge, uh, not certainly not the only, but a bridge between uh, social science and leadership studies. Uh, I name this, this hypothetical bridge political creativity, uh, and by that I mean the possibility that individuals can control uh, relatively large-scale political change to intended outcomes uh, through long-term projects that go against prevailing conditions and conventional ideas, and, uh, and which focus on changing one broad element of their uh, political environment. Uh, general examples would, be, would include efforts to restructure intergroup relations, uh, empower a previously weak constituency, uh, change certain status quo ideas and practices, um, and to reshape, to reshape particular institutions of government. Uh, 
So, can social science help us understand the politically possible? Uh, uh, should we bother, as social scientists, uh, considering this fairly micro uh, topic of uh, possibilities for controlled political change? Um, this is an awfully strong concept. Uh, a different way to put it is to think about is to think about it in terms of uh, the the uh, classic distinction between structure, social conditions, and agency, uh, individual action. Um, at present, it's probably fair to say that that uh, the, the the consensus is not that the political outcomes we see are produced solely by structure, solely by agency, but some uh, combination or interaction of the two. Uh, but this this opens up a whole other set of problems. How do you make sense of this interaction? It would be much easier if we could just focus on one or the other. Um, to, to think about it from an agency angle, uh, where we have agency over here and structure over here. Um, if you think about it from an agency angle, there, there's different kinds of possible agency. Uh, you have what, what, what we could call redundant agency. Uh, you do need people for social outcomes. They, you know, you can't have a revolution without people. So there's probably some sort of agency. But uh, you, often, you often in social science get this redundant form where um, it doesn't really matter too much about the specific characteristics uh, or behaviors of individual people. If you put others in their, in their position, you see pretty much the same outcome. Um, moving a little bit away, uh, when you start to see literature on, on things like uh, system effects, you could talk about unintended agency, where individuals could have uh, you know, influence on, on political outcomes that uh, not everybody would, would have contributed. An example might be um, uh, Breslar's interpretation of, of Gorbachev's role in the fall of the Soviet Union. Uh, it's, it's, uh, he argues that it's unlikely that just anyone could have played Gorbachev's role, but the outcomes certainly weren't in line with his intentions. So he as an individual had effect, but not the one he wanted. Um, if you look at uh, literatures like that on sort of democratic transitions, you get another form of agency, which is called bracketed agency, where people do have some intended effect on outcomes, but it's within a, a constrained period of time so that the scale and duration is, uh, is limited. Um, there's an upheaval where institutions are thrown into, uh, into disrepair. Um, centrally placed individuals may have opportunity to, to shape in line with their, uh, their intentions. And then, sort of put this over at the far end, uh, often when, when I talk to people and, the, and the, the fact that I'm interested in leadership comes up, people will say, oh, well, what about charisma? Um, and certainly that, that at times has been uh, uh, a major interest of, of people who study leadership. You could think back to um, Tucker in the 60s writing about Lenin and, and arguing that Lenin's charisma was part of the reason he had such influence on the Bolsheviks. Um, but a res uh, unreasonable response from the social scientists is to say that, um, assuming that's right, uh, charisma may be so unique to the individual involved that, and, and so dependent on the particular case 
but there's not a lot we can learn as social scientists to take with us to other cases. Um, now, what I want is to have something in here, sort of between the bracketed and, and the magical or the mystical. And that's what I call controlled agency. Uh, it's where an individual does have impact on their social, an individual group of individuals does have impact on their, their social environment. Um, but it's, it's more than bracketed. They have control over a longer period of time. And so I'm trying to expand the scale and duration. So if you, if you switch to thinking of this line as, um, you know, this would be like uh, the mayor of Spuzzum uh, shifting zoning laws to help cheese makers. And this might be Canadian agricultural policy. Well, the mayor might have a lot of... So think of this as, as, as uh, scale and duration going up. Um, one of the questions that you know, I'm interested in is sort of how, how far can we get from, from spasm to you know, higher levels of analysis to, to bigger questions and, and still be able to think about possibilities for people to control things. Because if, you, if, you, if you're interested in sort of, uh, as, as Jared Diamond is in Guns, Germs, and Steel, of covering 13,000 years of history, then there's not a whole lot of sense of talking about individual control, right? Um, but even though he does, on occasion, do that in questionable ways. Um, but so how far can we really, you know, keep this, have, have a more generalized understanding of possibilities for controlled agency? So that's kind of what this is about. So... How do you answer these questions? Uh, I mean, you need you need techniques to to sort of bridge bridge the gap between individual and social. And there's sort of two ways to to, to start this. Uh, one is to think about how we tend to think about stability and change, or order and change. Uh, because if you want to think about political creativity, it's about producing change often out of stability. Um, and, and then the other general way to think about things is is uh, is to shift from sort of static variables like geography and regime type to uh, to causal mechanisms, where the idea is to focus more on on how outcomes follow uh, from conditions, on the steps through which particular factors lead to outcomes. Um, and this sort of mechanisms focus is useful uh, because you, you want it gives us more room to think about possible contributions for individuals. If, if, we, if we're thinking about sort of variables like how geography affects uh, economic development, how economic development affects regime type, or how regime type affects propensity to go to war, um, just simply the way of asking those questions can often limit you know, how we can think about possibilities for individual, individuals to impact outcomes. Um, but a mechanism's focus gives us more room. And I'm sort of throwing up wall-like regularities is, is, is how I'm referring 
to, to mechanisms. And this, this comes out of... Uh, um, there's one definition of causal mechanisms, causal mechanisms is um, a series of events governed by law-like regularities that link the event or pattern to be explained uh, to the circumstances that are believed to explain it. Uh, some people refer to this as the cogs and wheels of, of uh, social processes. Um, so in general, if, if we take these two together um, and think of, of order and change of processes, there's sort of two, there's two general ways that we often think about it. Uh, one is the, a, a punctuated equilibrium sort of model where uh, uh, social conditions are relatively calm, stable for a while, then there's some sort of break, uh, uh, an economic crisis, a 9-11. Um, and then that produces a whole bunch of change and then things settle down again into some new pattern. Or well, there's, there's also um, sort of authors that are interested in more long-term questions uh, uh, and interest in historical trends. Um, sort of uh, you know, modernization, economic development. Uh, you can sort of see this when, when people try to trace origins of nationalism over a long period of time uh, with respect to trying to understand ethnic conflict. And that sort of question brings up two other common assumptions that, that we use. Uh, one is that we often treat groups as units, which implies that the members of those groups uh, share a common set of traits not all traits, but, but some common set of traits that's relevant for our understanding of, of uh, who they are and what they're likely to do. And then the other is then that, that politics can be viewed as uh, competition or cooperation between groups. Um, now here I want to get into a more specific example to, to, to try to, to show some of the problems with these kinds of assumptions. Um, there's a, a sort of started off like this in the years in the years following this is a quote from a, a historian named Tim Snyder uh, about uh, Polish, Polish policy towards its eastern neighbors in the years following the revolutions of 1989 every imaginable cause of national conflict could be found among Poland, Lithuania, Belarus and Ukraine Imperial disintegration, frontiers without historical legitimacy, provocative minorities, revanchist claims, fearful elites, nearly democratic or newly democratic politics, memories of ethnic cleansing, and national myths of eternal conflict. And then another quote from him is, is that as NATO admitted Poland, it bombed Yugoslavia. As the world followed conflicts among Serbs and their neighbors, a joint Polish-Ukrainian peacekeeping battalion was dispatched to Kosovo. Uh, this, so what, what Snyder's trying to do is, is make the point that uh, you know, there, there could have been a Balkans in the Baltics. And he wants to, uh, part of what he wants to do is explain why there wasn't. And he comes up with a, with a he, he deals with many factors, but one of them is, is a few key Polish actors. Um, 
just to go over some of a little bit of the history for background. Uh, in 1939 to 40, Poland and Lithuania were overrun by both Nazis and Soviets who uh, would deport and kill perhaps millions of people on the basis of ascribed um, definitions of nation and race. Um, there was already some ethnic conflict going on before this between uh, Poles and Lithuanians and, and U Ukrainians, but um, this was fairly uh, low-scale violence and not on, on, a, on a very large, it wasn't particularly well organized. Um, the Soviets and Nazis introduced uh, a, a corpus of practices and a level of violence that was completely unprecedented to the area. Um, and part of, part of, part of, I mean, it was explicitly introduced in the sense that both both sides would train and use members of one ethnic group against another, uh, either to police them, to move them away, to kill them. Uh, so this is part of this uh, the setup for 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 wondering why there was was peace later on. Um, in 1943 to 4, Ukrainian rebels in, in Volhynia and Galicia embarked on a massive campaign of murdering Poles. Um, at the, end of the, at the end of the war in 1945, the borders of the region are set with Poland losing a lot of its eastern land, albeit gaining some from Germany in the west. Um, one of the key cities in, in the region, uh, Vilnius, was taken from Poland and given to Lithuania by Stalin. Um, and while Stalin did create a relatively homogeneous Poland, uh, there was still a sizable Ukrainian population, including rebels, who continued to fight with Polish troops. Uh, so in 1947, the Poles launched Operation Vistula, which had two main elements. One was to try to track down and, and eliminate the rebels, but the other was to take uh, Ukrainian civilians and disperse them as widely as possible through Poland to, to basically, uh, you know, not only take away a base for Ukrainian rebels, but also make the probability of assimilation much higher. So, uh, fast forward to the late 1980s. Uh, now the context is the collapse of the Soviet Union and the eruption of uh, revanchist claims and ethnic violence, especially in the Balkans. Uh, in 1989, however, a roundtable held between Polish communists, solidarity members, and the church uh, leads to Polish sovereignty. Um, in 1991, Ukraine, Lithuania, and Belarus uh, all gained their independence, and now Poland is one of the first, if not these first, countries uh, to recognize the independence of all of these countries. And um, not only that, but uh, recognize their borders. Um, and, and furthermore, give up any formal, they did not make any claims of formal rights over the, the Polish people who are living uh, in these other countries, the Polish minorities, who are not only living there, but living in lands formerly held by Poland. Uh, in the, over the next few years, these countries proceed uh, to sign uh, cooperation treaties, friendship treaties, reconciliation treaties, um, 
and, and uh, in the end, uh, sir, as, as mentioned before, um, the Ukrainians and the Poles, who were perhaps the two most uh, you know, violent of, of the parties uh, near the end of World War II, are now or had a shared in a peacekeeping battalion uh, to, to go into Kosovo. So why no violence? Uh, the simple explanation would be the, that the ethnic cleansings and border shiftings at the end uh, of World War II made uh, Poles, Ukrainians, Lithuanians, and Belarusians masters of their own house. Uh, so all this cooperation makes sense, especially when you have uh, uh, incentives of joining Europe on one side and threats of resurgent Russia on the other. Uh, but a closer look at events uh, reveals something further and possibilities for something else. Uh, my pronunciation isn't going to be great, but Snyder had presents sort of three individuals as, as key to, to his story. Uh, one of them is uh, Yerzy Giedrok, one is Julius uh, Miroshevsky, and one is Krzysztof uh, Skubyshevsky. Uh, they, they were somewhat unique among, among, Pol among Poles. Uh, in particular, uh, uh, they differed radically not only from other Poles, but Eastern uh, European emigres in general. Uh, Giedok and Miroshevsky were uh, living in Paris after, after World War II as, as exiles. And in 1947, they founded, uh, Giedok in particular, founded a journal called Kultura, which ended up being sort of a, a, a focal point for debate about the future of Poland. And while the Polish government in exile in London, uh, right up until 1989, uh, uh, kept on the argument that uh, Poland should take back its old lands and, and redress historical wrongs, um, these actors uh, came up with a different view of what the Polish future should be. Uh, they did not accept the nostalgia for old institutions and, and desire to take back lands lost to the Soviets. Uh, in part, this is because of their sensitivity to nationalism and their, their vision of a problem. Uh, how to establish peaceful relations among a set of uh, recreated states with historical grievances. Um, basically, they had quite early on, in, especially in the early 1970s, uh, assumed that someday the Soviet Union was going to fall. And they figured that, that uh, Poland would be faced with some, some, quest, some problems, uh, one of them being all of these historical grievances between them and their neighbors, and also this threat of a Russia on the other side. Uh, so they decided to to try to, to, to come up with a different form of relations. They, they decided to take the border set as given and try and encourage the other three states, or the other three uh, states, is okay, uh, to, to proceed instead of looking back at historical wrongs, but to move forward uh, as, as, as states, accepting the borders as they were. Um, So 
So what, what's particularly interesting about the case is if you start looking at the form and timing of their actions. Uh, they were, they started building these co cooperative, uh, if you look at the timing, um, they started their work towards this end in the 1970s. It's kind of hard to, to think about these sorts of, this is this anomaly, this first anomaly. There, there seems to be a lot of important action going on during stable times when there isn't pressure to make change. Um, second anomaly is that uh, they, they were, there was important work done both um, among Poles in terms of trying to, trying to push their, their vision of a, of a Polish future based uh, more on, state, on stable states versus uh, Poles who, who wanted to, to take back what was in the past. And they also needed, they also uh, spent time making contacts with groups in the other, in the other uh, states, uh, especially opposition groups who might be receptive to their message. And then just the way that they, they uh, you know, the way that they formulated the vision and kept working on it over decades uh, suggests some rather remarkable capabilities that it's sort of difficult to capture with, with the sort of with the social science tools that we normally we normally use. Um, so a question that to ask is 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 there if if Snyder's right in that. Uh, the sort of vision and, and, and proactive action of, of some key individuals was important for uh, there not being ethnic violence in the Balkans after the or the Baltics after the fall of the Soviet Union. Uh, <coughs> if he's right that, that certain kind of, if those kinds of action uh, can be key uh, for relatively big outcomes like that, um, can we incorporate that into social science? That's sort of the, the challenge. Uh, so then we shift, shift over to thinking about how we look at um, uh, our law-like regularities. Um, so given the concern with causal mechanisms, we need to know what kind of mechanisms or social processes face those uh, working <coughs> to, to create change. And one of the things that they're going to have to face uh, is is dynamic, what you call dynamics of stability. And think about uh, one of them being self self reinforcing sequences or self reinforcing dynamics. The idea here is that um, I'm going to have to go through these pretty quickly, but uh, the general idea is that uh, with that is that uh, adjusting to, re to adjusting to order reinforces it, um, and and it also covers how winners have incentive to, to preserve order. You can think about sort of sunk costs, increasing returns. Um, but if you, to, to take it to a more political, uh, more political sense, you can think about status quo bias. Um, this covers how sort of pr political procedures uh, favor incumbent interests, how collective ag action problems make it difficult to organize people for change. 
Um, and then finally, you can think about uh, convention. This is the idea that there, in, in any context, there's sort of a limited set of ideas and practices. Uh, these, so the point is, is to give us uh, more specific ways to think about about change. Right? You know, what what do you need to get through uh, sort of social dynamics that reinforce an existing order? Um, and the, the quick answer for how, from how we, we typically uh, approach this is either there needs to be some sort of exogenous shock to break through the reinforcing dynamics, or there needs to be some you know, deep trend, uh, uh, such as uh, migration or something, to, to, uh, to, to break through. But this, this, uh, but, but as mentioned before, there's this issue of, well, in the Polish example, we've got um, what looks to be significant action occurring during stable times when, when all of these are supposed to be enforced. Uh, so here, the move can be to, to think about another set of of law-like regular, law regularities, and that um, is to think about dynamics of instability as being sort of ordinary social processes uh, that, that don't depend on some shock or, or major trend that can open up opportunities for, for people to work on change. Uh, ideas here would be that um, uh, social conditions are often multifaceted. Uh, there, are, there are multiple dimensions to issues and multiple uses for, for political resources. You can think about how state funerals can be both a way to uh, sort of glorify the regime, or they can be an opportunity <coughs> for opposition uh, to, to, uh, uh, to gather and vent their anger. Historic, uh, historical artifacts can be used to, to glorify a certain kind of history or, or, or uh, support um, rebellion against it. Uh, another another uh, sort of dynamic of instability is you can think about social, societal heterogeneity. Um, this, is, this, is, this covers how groups and networks overlap uh, and how you know, uh, people are faculty at Ohio State, but also could be uh, Canadian, could also could be female, also could be uh, African American, and these sorts of cross, these sorts of um, uh, sort of multiple biographies, uh, some argue, can generate uh, conflict and, and novel uses and combinations of different elements of identity or, or, or other uh, social elements. Um, a, a third sort of ordinary dynamic of instability is uh, kingdoms, windows of opportunity. The idea that um, every once in a while there will be some unusual event, nothing that threatens the overall order, but that can uh, rally uh, attention, public attention to a certain issue. Uh, could be that a, a, a high profile accident uh, uh, rallies attention to the issue of drunk driving, and that leads to, to policy change. Um, and then finally, um, 
Another dynamic instability that I think about is, is uh, what I call incomplete victories, which covers how when, when even if you do sort of, where there is sort of punctuated equilibrium type change, uh, the, the political group that's defeated, many of its members remain, remain in the game. They're not wiped out. Um, this means that they're, they're, they're there, they're dissatisfied with the existing order, um, they're available to to uh, to work against sort of the victors if if other opportunity arises. You can perhaps think of um, uh, sort of reform-minded clerics uh, in Iran, in the sense that uh, there is excuse me. Um, people talk about this sort of. Sort of twin legacy of Khomeini in the sense that there's both in his writings and in the constitution he left, there's both a very strong religious element of clerical rule, but he also tried to implement secular state structures. So there's this, this, this mix where there are tools for both, sort of right now, the more dominant. Um, hardliners, but there's also, uh, one could argue, uh, tools for the more reform-minded, where, where they were able to, for a while at least, uh, gain, make gains through the electoral, the electoral procedures that, that were there. So this kind of adding this, these dynamics of instability to our, our, our law-like regularities opens up more, more room for thinking about agency and also how we think about change. Um, you can think about, if you think of sort of fast change and slow change, uh, you can add more endogenous forms. Uh, you can think about sort of um, information cascades or what's more commonly sort of written about as tipping points um, or the, you know, the spread of a fashion or a new idea. Um, you have more detailed uh, dynamics of how uh, social conditions are either stable or unstable. Uh, you can talk about these more, uh, more, more kinds of fast change and then slow change. Um, it makes it, when you have this extra detail, you can think about sort of incremental roots. Um, here you can think about, uh, there was a recent example of, of uh, on NPR about um, a woman in Ethiopia who's been working for over 30 years to alleviate poverty by, uh, by rebuilding, um, building new, new little houses in slums. And it's uh, definitely proving quite effective, but it's an incremental long-term process to alleviate poverty and sort of bring people up. Um, but there's still here a problem with with these two issues that I think we often think about, uh, especially if we move closer closer to the to the social, closer if we expand the the scale and duration of the, the kinds of political questions we're interested in. Um, 
you run into this problem of, of thinking about bigger groups and politics as, as intergroup conflict, and when you do that, it becomes it, it's hard to think about how specific individuals could could intentionally sort of you know, uh, guide you know an, an, a large national group or or ethnic group in in, in a in a design direction and keep control over it. Um, so let's return to the second anomaly, this, this work done within groups. Uh, here, here, um, I want to question the notion of group cohesion. And by moving from group to within group, I'm not just moving from one group dynamic to another. I'm not just saying, okay, let's look at factions and how factions compete against each other. Um, the idea is that there are, uh, you know, we do want to maintain our sense of political, politically salient groups. We do, when thinking about the Polish example, we do want to think about ethnic Poles and ethnic Ukrainians. Um, but I think it's useful to consider possible differences uh, between individuals independent of their group membership. And so if we think back to our, our, our law-like regularities, uh, how can we speak of them at a social level uh, when events depend, depend on the myriad, myriad actions of diverse individuals? Uh, how do we bridge this gap? And uh, Daniel Little's response is that the, the, fact, the fact that human beings conform to a loose set of psychological laws uh, permits us to draw cause-effect relations between a given social environment and a pattern of behavior. So these, these sorts of laws uh, describe how people usually interpret information, uh, how they measure risk, how they respond to incentives. Uh, and, and so a social environment would cause uh, group behavior through the information and incentives it provides. Uh, channel through the usual ways, the, the loose set of psychological laws through which people respond to such conditions. So what we posit as those usual ways, what we posit as psychological laws, uh, is going to be important to our understanding of social factors. Um, and a way to think about this is that we're all, there's sort of three ways you can think about us. We're all human beings. We all share a certain set of traits as human beings. We're all social beings. Uh, we have certain traits, uh, you know, as members of groups. Uh, but we're also individual beings in how we, we differ from each other. And typically, social scientists aren't going to be too interested in that last category, as that's just, you know, our questions are on a bigger level. Um, they aren't, from a political perspective, uh, the way we differ from, you know, the way one Canadian differs from another may not be politically relevant if, if you know, if, if, our, depending, if our level of analysis is, is sort of closer to this end. But individuals can differ uh, in both idiosyncratic ways, um, but also in systematic ways, and those are the ones that I'm interested in. Um, these are called ordin ordinary differences, and I subdivide them into two types. Uh, the, the personal is 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 about ordinary differences in the perception of condition, 
conditions. Uh, these would cover assorted views in in uh, assorted views among group members of changes desirable and possible. And sort of want to know where what, one of the sources of this is that if uh, an, an example would be that the recent literature on behavioral behavioral genetics finds that regardless of social background, and there's common and significant patterned difference uh, among individuals uh, with potentially relevant social uh, characteristics. You can, here you can think about this issue of convention, like how you know, we understand the ideas and practices of our social environment. Um, personal differences would include that there, there seems to be either a natural or very early developed uh, bias towards or against the status quo. Some people just gravitate towards the way things are. Some people are more inclined to want something new and different. Um, these are personal differences. Um, uh, you could sort of on the on the. There's also uh, uh, well, there's also uh, differences in learning capabilities that that might be relevant. Uh, this this being uh, about sort of capabilities to understand and adopt new practices um, may not be it's not always easy to convince other social scientists that these are going to matter uh, it, presumably in you know when when the hordes are at your door uh, and they're wanting to attack you for your identity as a Canadian. Um, it's kind of hard to, to shift to something else. Uh, it, the argument basically being that, that, especially when you look at sort of more macro literature about, um, for example, uh, how economic conditions are supposed to influence whether you are a stable democracy or not, um, these sorts of personal differences should just be smoothed <coughs> over. Uh, but there, but they, they become amplified if you turn to to interpersonal differences, and this this is going back to this literature on tipping points, uh, on cascades, or more generally on, on network dynamics, network effects. Um, uh, the sort of the, the pop version of this is Gladwell's tipping point, and one of the interesting things that he does is talk about how while, uh, while, while people can be, well, it's important to look at how information travels along networks, uh, ordinary social networks are not homogeneous in terms of uh, the roles that individuals play in that network. Some individuals end up being like hubs. They, they are the ones who, who have tons of connections, tons of friends. Uh, they're the ones who, who uh, uh, you could think of as local authority figures who we turn to when uh, we want to sort out um, how to vote on a particular issue, or, or whether it's worth buying an iPod. Um, he he uh, Gladwell calls uh, people who have, you know, lots and lots of connections like those connectors. Um, uh, but he also talks about another kind, uh, two other kinds of people that he calls mavens and salesmen. And here the idea is that. Uh, uh, some people not only have lots of connections, but their ideas and practices are also uh, uh, much more influential. They, 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 
it's it's one thing to to be connected to a lot of a lot of people. It's another to actually influence their behavior and do so purposefully. And basically, the idea is that once you put these two together, uh, you can think about more possibilities for intentional change. And in that it's hard to imagine moving an entire group in one direction, but it's a little easier to think about it if if personal differences open up some percentage of the population to be more inclined to accept something new and be better at learning how to use it. And then, furthermore, that uh, because of interpersonal differences, uh, if, you, if you sort of retrain or, or convince a few of the right people, those ideas and practices can move through a pretty big group fairly quickly. So, where are we? Um, We've got, if you're buying this, we've, we've got a lot more room to think about possibilities for controlling change than we did starting here. Um, but, you know, a, a comeback would be, well, we also got a heck of a lot more complexity than you had when you were here. So, if anything, I'm less inclined to believe that people can control political change now because I've got to think about self-reporting self-reinforcing sequences, national bias, effects at convention, uh, shocks, trends, all sorts of instability, all these within-group differences. Uh, how can anybody possibly control this? Well, the move I make is to say uh, that we can, we can put these together and come up with relatively concrete problems for someone looking to create uh, creative change. Um, rather than just saying you, know, you have to bend the historical trend, um, especially when you're tracing two specific case studies, if you can find uh, indicators of self-reinforcing sequences in the presence of, of uh, particularly influential hubs, and you can find sort of uh, that the particular groups aren't you know, homogeneous. Um, you can come up with specific problems. Um, and, and you can, I, I sort of just as a way to help keep track of things, I divide them into three levels, problems at the individual group and social level for somebody trying to create change. You level, in the level, individual level, you can think about um, the power of convention to, to limit one's own view of the desirable and possible. Um, and the, the difficulties and personal costs of working against self-reinforcing sequences. And you can think about how um, you know, incumbent interests are going to have a lot of tools to, to prevent you from knocking them out of power, right? Um, at, uh, let's skip ahead a bit. At the group level, um, you can think about uh, how sort of the difficulty of working with the difficulty of working against sort of status quo bias and self-reinforcing sequences over time. It's not easy to to part part of the part of the argument with the, the, the windows of opportunity idea that you need this sort of event to focus people's attention. Is it is hard to keep people's attention on a political issue over time. It's, it's hard to, to maintain uh, 
I mean, if you if you read the literature on protest movements, um, there's a book by by Jasper that that, um, that uh, covers a lot of different protest movements in, in, in depth, and and he's interested in the dynamics of how these groups come together. Um, but uh, over the course of it, he notes that most of them don't produce anything uh, because they just can't maintain momentum. So you can sort of think about that as as a diff as a specific problem uh, of maintaining a group to, to work against existing conditions. At the social level, uh, you know, one of the things I talked about here was how, how social conditions are, are multifaceted. It's going to be, and you know, especially if with the project view, if you, if you work on something over time, it's more likely that, that something like shocks are going to occur. Um, it's going to, it's going to be difficult to to uh, to handle them. So, what do you do? Um, here, once you have sort of your your list of, of problems, the, the potential kinds of problems for a project for political creativity, um, here's where you can take the final step and and uh, hopefully the last the piece of the bridge over into leadership studies. And this is to start thinking about, thinking about and looking at research into uh, what you could call uh, extraordinary differences, uh, where some people are good at, at keeping motivated over the long haul, where some people um, uh, uh, for example, where the anti-mafia prosecutors in Sicily you know, knew full well that their probability of being killed for their work was very high. They saw lots of their colleagues die around them. Um, and yet, uh, uh, both uh, uh, the mayor of Palermo, Leo Luca Orlando, and uh, uh, a couple of the more famous prosecutors, uh, Giovanni Falcone and Paolo Borsellino, uh, you know, it didn't matter. They were, they were devoted to their cause. They, they were going to keep working on it no matter what. They tried to take precautions. Uh, Orlando survived, Borsellino and Falcone did not. Uh, but, you know, this is, this is sort of a pretty extraordinary mindset. And it's relevant for thinking about some of the problems that, that are faced for politically uh, creative uh, causes that are faced with some of the difficult issues there. Um, oh, geez. I know we're supposed to stop close to one. But uh, I, I guess the final point is that um, mindset you can sort of think along the lines of how we often talk in social science about preferences. Well, preferences is too vague. Um, if you want to think about possibilities for, for action, uh, you, you want to distill as much as you can within case studies the specific problems facing people. And this sort of framework can help you do that. Um, and then on the, the other end, you, as much as possible, you want, you want to know about extraordinary capabilities with respect to motivation, um, but also with respect to attitude, or aptitude. I mean, th think about uh, this, this issue of status quo bias, especially in politics. How do you get to a position of influence when your, your ultimate goal is to change the political order? Uh, presumably, if you make too much noise too early on, you're going to get ejected from the game. So simply getting and maintaining a position of influence. Uh, people do it. There are definitely examples. 
but it's an extraordinary capability. Uh, so I've taken mostly a theoretical route to this point, and albeit motivated somewhat by the, by the Polish example. But then where you go from this step, this what is, at least in this talk, a fairly theoretical possibility of there being control agency, then you've got to use this in case studies uh, to see if this is a, if this is, you know, uh, this is actually going on. If, if the sort of extraordinary differences that match up with the kinds of problems we get uh, actually happen. And uh, it's, with the work I've done, there, there, you can. You can find some of this. It's never, gonna, it's never in a pure form. Uh, the closer you get over here to bigger questions, the more there are going to be unintended consequences, the more that uh, powerful social forces are going to uh, sort of prevent you from having too much control. But um, I think this is, while complicated, uh, a useful way of getting at this distance between uh, where individuals, where their, where their patterns of behavior, where their choices, where their characteristics really don't matter for, for the outcomes and, and, and patterns, social patterns we're interested in, to where uh, their, their patterns of behavior, where their characteristics, where their choices matter for guiding um, possibly large-scale political change. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. What, I, what I think I just heard is that you're telling us that the factors that you have out there are important factors to consider in deciding when the impact of agency and versus the structure, as you understand, is the most significant. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, it, is that at all? Am I, am I getting it? Basically, is that, I mean, we're supposed to look systematically at these factors and help them decide where we are? Right. I mean, sort of. Um, you know, one of the key motivating questions is uh, you know, how do we think about what is politically possible? And me meaning that if if we want to uh, sort of have something to say when people want to know how do we uh, you know, how do we get through some of the uh, uh, well, there's, there's there's two, two, two motivations. One is, is to respond to people who say that you know, we can't, have, we don't have much to say uh, with, uh, uh, with, with big political problems because we tend to focus on the, the, the social conditions that help produce that problem. Mm -hmm. And if people come to us and say, well, what can we do about it? Um, it's, it's, I find it difficult to respond. Um, the other is simply that um, it is when, when often my work's more about looking at historical cases where there are uh, conflicting explanations for it and butting heads with people who, who uh, dismiss the leadership element. It's, it's very difficult to respond to them because, in part because of uh, this interaction uh, element, um, it's it's 
you know, you can, this is, this is too simple an example, but, um, you know, a lot of people quite rightly hold up Rosa Parks as, uh, you know, a great example of political action. Um, a more, a, sort of a, a more structural response is then to say, well, she didn't really matter. The civil, the civil rights movement would have happened without her. Um, I tend to, to look at cases where, to me, it seems like people are contributing quite a bit, but I, I was, it's, it's difficult to respond to, 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 the, to the argument that someone else in the same position would have done the same thing. Yeah, right, 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 or, right, right, yeah sorry. Okay. It strikes me that you know, a lot of people in this room if we get a reasonable person argues there are times when these individual differences make a great deal of difference. There are other times when systemic structural factors have a great deal of influence. And I think we can all plausibly argue that both of those are the case. Have you thought about the scope conditions under which you would expect some of the patterns that you talked to us about to prevail versus others? Um, I don't know if this is quite the answer that you're looking for, but um, um, part of the idea of this setup is that uh, I think it's perfectly feasible to to have a have a look at have a look at a particular case, look for these sorts of dynamics. Uh, Look at the sort of action that is taking place. Part of the reason for focusing on projects, I think, is to, is to help with this question because if you look at people working over a long period of time uh, on, on on one aspect, on trying to change one broad aspect of their environment, um, if, if you see them sort of moving sort of in concert. With, with these sorts of dynamics, then it doesn't look like it's going to be an argument in favor of agency. It's, it's going to be one where the story does look much more like um, it's the structure that's doing the work. Uh, so part, of, part of what this move is to do is to say, um, Okay. Yeah. This this case may be determined more by the by the environment, but how do you show that on a micro level? Uh, how do you show that that what people are doing is because there is this uh, it's, it's a gap between talking about uh, social patterns and individual behavior and. This is why I'm attracted to, to the move to think more about uh, social mechanisms than, than static variables, because I think this is the way to either, especially if you're talking about single case studies, to, to try to figure out you know, how much it is structure, if there is any agency, and if so, what kind. Even though the idea of projects is a central uh, concept in the framework, 
at the end of the day, the, the analysis or like the framework um, is looking at attributes of structure, attributes of individuals. And it seems to me that if you're thinking about creativity and agency, mm -hmm. what these things are really about are processes. They're, they're practices, they're strategies. And some strategies will work well, perhaps under certain conditions, some strategies will not. And so in a sense, it makes less less important to explain why particular individuals become leaders than it is to explain why particular kinds of strategies succeed under certain conditions and others yeah. fail. So I guess I'm wondering um, why you spend so much time talking about attributes of individuals and, and agents and structures right. and not so much time about types of strategies that actors use to induce change. Uh, that's fair. Um, Part of it, you know, uh, so I sort of um, when when I I have been trying to sort of think about this a bit more because a lot a lot of with something like the Polish example where I'm talking about three three different actors contributing to the overall project, it does make more sense to talk about their overall patterns of behavior. And I do sort of, um, <coughs> perhaps I should focus more on that than the individuals, but uh, I think part of it just comes out of this this um, effort to connect specific behaviors uh, to social processes. Uh, when, when, I guess this is more oriented to explaining, you know, cases that we see if, if you're, uh, looking at um, yeah I mean I guess I, I, I do I don't know if I've got this quite right but one of the things I have I guess tried to avoid tried to avoid is getting too much into um too much into sort of where individual characteristics come from, uh, and focus more on more on capabilities as they're tied to these problems. So it, it does remain sort of more about uh, the process than does that does that seem right? Because the the, the connection to specific um, capabilities comes through. Uh, the kinds of problems that are being created for that project. And I suppose it's not that essential to, to focus too much on, on the capabilities, but am I getting out? Tim. Can you talk a little bit about um, your research in the specific case that mm -hmm. I thought you know, specifically how those processes work in the Okay. Well, there. Um, the case. The the main cases were um, the anti-mafia campaign in, in Italy, especially in Sicily, focusing mostly on um, um, the the mayor of Palermo, Orlando, and Falcone, in part because uh, what was what was interesting about their sort of paired role, and maybe this is kind of what you're talking about, is that um, it ended up being uh, kind of like an overall strategy that Orlando worked a little more on the, the political side of the problem, 
and Falcone more on the judicial side of the problem. Because a lot of these, you know, one of the things I mentioned is, is sort of multi-dimensionality of, of social issues. And for these sorts of projects, you, you do need to hit them from multiple angles. So I guess, uh, I guess the response to Alex would be, yeah. Um, and then another uh, another case was um, uh, the the effort to uh, implement village, village council elections in China, and again there is there is a, a multi-dimensional angle to it. Um, it was it was founded mostly by uh, a small set of bureaucrats in uh, Ministry of Community Affairs, but at, at key points, you know, they needed political allies. Um, but but what, what was particularly interesting for me what was how how these individuals uh, navigated a very complex political environment stuck with things over time. Um, another case uh, was uh, the movement to abolish the slave trade in Britain, but but focusing on a particular conservative. Uh, politician Grenville, and the reason for doing that was that while um, this is sort of the case I'm sort of least satisfied with, and, and I, I, I want to, I've been thinking about ways to retool it, but basically the idea was that um, the case against slavery was, at least among elites, among uh, thinking elites, uh, ideologically speaking, one pretty uh, sort of early on, the late the late 1700s, but the first political victory didn't come until 1806, and even that seems uh, uh, earlier than it, it doesn't seem like it, it seems quite possible that 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 the, in the 1806 1807 um, passing of abolishing of the trade, not slavery itself, but but the use of British ships to trade uh, could have easily been delayed to the 1930s uh, because one of the key problems was getting through uh, sort of both the conservatives, especially in, in the Senate, and through the king. Uh, but you had in you had this uh, in 1806. You had this uh, reforming Prime Minister Pitt. Uh, up to that point had been unwilling to take a real hard shot at the anti-slavery thing. Uh, but he, he dies in 1806 and is replaced by the Ministry of All the Talents, who are led by Grenville, who is interesting for the, the kind of grasp he had on the, the British political system. Um, he was, uh, according to, to the sources I've read, just unusually capable in, in, in sort of uh, navigating the British political system. So, um, again, it's overall, it's a case where uh, the outcome depends on different people doing different things, but I wanted to focus on sort of one element of it. Um, um, thinking, I'm thinking about, about both Don's question and Alex's question and how they might be related to each other. Um, Don asked, what are the scope conditions um, under which you're operating here? 
And, and it, it struck me that the answer, your answer really is that uh, you're not trying to establish when structure might, or when agency uh, might work better than at other times, as much as you're trying to deconstruct all of our concepts about stability and so forth, that what social science is mainly interested in doing is making unitary concepts so that we can so that we can have a clear dependent, independent variable to explain a dependent variable. And what you're doing is unpacking or disaggregating or deconstructing all of these things. So it's not so much that you want to say, well, uh, here is the occasion when it might work better and here's the occasion when it might work worse. Mm -hmm. What you want to say instead is, look, let's reconceptualize the way in which people interact with each other uh, through these concepts and then we'll begin to get a handle on uh, on how to get political change. And Alex's question then comes in, this is prior work to that. And so once you have done that then, that's the time to begin to think about the strategy that a particular actor, a pitter, a vendor, or whatever, uh, might undertake. But, but the whole work that you've been engaged in so far is creating this conceptual framework, and so you haven't gotten there yet? So gotten... To the point where you are really think the next step here is to take this framework and begin to look at how people strategize within it. Yeah, I mean, certainly the the the, the way I used case studies uh, in the dissertation was uh, primarily to to support and justify the method, uh, the analytical approach. I wanted to show that it was. Um, that it was feasible for one thing, that you could actually take all of this stuff and apply it to some real case studies. Um, and also uh, um, show that these sorts of, well, for one thing, that the concept of political creativity made sense, that it, that it was worth uh, looking for this. Um, so, and also that, that uh, that it was that it was worth that, that it wasn't sort of limited to a certain kind of political system or a certain part of the world. Uh, so, yeah, I guess I mean the, the case studies certainly aren't uh, perhaps a, yeah not right. yeah. That. Have you considered uh, or have you used impact? Oh, there's a lot of that going on. Yeah. Um, because it seems to me that you're trying to make the argument that in the absence of agents generally, but in particular, particular agents, that even if it's achieved, it's about. So, like, yeah. your fourth example, had these three individual things there, that's sort of like these, these are counterfactuals are, are, are implied, uh, I mean, part of, part of what, I mean, a way to sort of think about this is, uh, to because is a way to try and get a better handle on counterfactuals. Um, you know, there's there's uh, you know, the, people have tried to make sort of uh, uh, standards for how to use counterfactuals, like the idea that there should be a minimum rewrite rule, that you should only go so far back uh, or change you know very little, you know, and then because once you start going too far back, then there's just, you're assuming too much. Um, 
a way to sort of think about this is sort of give you the tools to maybe to to perform counterfactuals, to to think about um, what individuals are actually contributing by taking this route to get to, to the specific problems they're solving. And then the counterfactual is, well, if they weren't there to solve them, then you've got some ideas about where those problems would have led. Is that? What do you do with, um, you have people, leaders, who think, decision makers, rather, who think they're constrained, but aren't really. Mm -hmm. example, Lynn Johnson thought that he couldn't get out of Vietnam because of the year that he described as for the healthy in the United States. That was a very clear case to God, and he was wrong about that. So there's a constraint that it isn't constrained. Right, right. But part of the creativity develops from constraint of position. So is that changing it? Well, for sure. I mean, uh, you know, that's hopefully part part of what you get get out of this is is you know as as in a way you've done. By the time you get to Lyndon Johnson, you've got a pretty uh, you've got your sense of what was really happening on the ground, uh, right? So um, his view of what the problems were, uh, you know, are not, not the same as yours, so. Uh, no, the question is, he's constrained by something which turns out not to be a constraint. Right. But he thinks that it's right. Yeah, yeah, I mean, that's. So you've got structure, you're, the indication of structure actually exists, but it's in the minds of the voters. Are yeah, that's that's one of the reasons for sort of thinking both um, about convention and about uh, what I had under here was was sort of the multi-dimensionality of social issues. That um, it is a problem to to it, one of the one of the aptitudes that you talked about it is just being able to to uh, to figure out what the conditions are. Yeah, yeah. Okay, arguing, you know, about the nature of the cases that I talk about, um, especially if we can talk about, you know, what what the nature of those conditions are, because, uh, you know, if you can give me, you know, uh, more, more evidence that there is uh, some sort of pressure, you know, on specific actors, you can convince me of that. 
then I'm going to end up thinking differently about the problems that were or were not there for the actors involved. So, um, I don't know, that may seem like dancing around the question, but, um, I mean, this, part of what I hope, you know, goes on with this sort of approach is that that's the kind of argument you end up with, that, uh, you know, and, and the sort of pushing people to find more evidence and better ways of thinking about which dynamics are in play, you know, what matters. I'm going to um, call a halt there because people have uh, classes at 1.30. <coughs> One of the many advantages of your method, of course, is that the best counterfactuals always involve killing people <laughs> or preserving them. So the more you go to the individual, the more you'll be able to use good counterfactuals. Some of you may wonder why I uh, am introducing Brett. Uh, uh, obviously, political scientists and historians do talk to each other sometimes. <laughs> it's one of the wonderful things about this which <coughs> brings us together. But it, it so happens that uh, Brett and I have known each other 25 years, uh, which is more than I've known any of you are. Um, <laughs> because I was at uh, UBC for a year in 1970 1980, and uh, Robert B. Kubisek uh, was my head of the So it's a particular pleasure for me to have.